You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to Land and Legacy Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye is here. Matt Dye is joining us. Where are you at in the world? St. Louis I'm area? I'm over, yep, St. Louis area. Yep. Perfect. Well, I'm sure on the road, so if you guys hear a little bit of sprinkling and raining, that's because I'm driving through a little bit of rain as I work my way back from um, consulting the last three days. And uh, Where have you been at? Where, where is that taking you? I've been in... Uh, Western Illinois, kind of central, north, central, I don't know. I've been around Peoria, and I've been around Quincy, and I've been around Keokuk, Keokuk, mm-hmm. Iowa, I guess, but right across the river in Illinois. Um, sure. So kind of that little triangle over in there. Um, seems like we're starting to do more work in the western side of Illinois. Um, so that's where I've been. And so that's what this week's podcast or second podcast of this week is going to be almost a a, po- a, a consult brain dump yes because yeah. there's been a lot of you know i think that's a an important part and that's why we bring this con uh, this this podcast to you guys each and every week is because content comes from our consulting business and it's also a way for us to give information that we utilize through our con through our consulting business that can hopefully help all of you Get the results you're looking for at a much quicker rate. That doesn't cost you uh, an arm and a leg to go buy the latest, fanciest product that might be being endorsed or uh, being told that that's how you grow big deer. Hopefully we can get you there a lot quicker with less dollars spent. Um, and, and this week, uh, you know, for, from what I viewed in my three consults, um, that, that well, that's exactly what we'll talk about is the fact that this wasn't something that's going to be, oh, this is going to cost you twenty grand to go put in all these food plots and do all this stuff. Now, one farm I actually did recommend some food plots, but it's kind of a double-edged sword where uh, the guy was wanting more food plots, but also we needed to use it to knock out some of the, some of the invasives. Sure. I mean, yeah, it, it, that, that's where you can really kind of kill the two birds with one stone and make an improvement but some areas yeah you you do need to put additional food plots in but they have added value in the same case and i'm going to bring some information to the podcast regarding some consulting work um not this past week but the weeks prior from um this great state of ohio that uh, we were seeing while 
while visiting there and working um, across, you know, from, from southeast all the way to southwest Ohio. Um, just a lot of different points to ba- basically hit on. I think, Adam, in the long run, not only will it save people money, but the other aspect and research that a lot of people always have, it's always a bottleneck, is the time. And like this, let's say, standard uh, operating procedures of how to be able to make improvements when time is limited and when really there's so many different factors competing for your time and attention. Yeah. Where do you start? Because that can be overwhelming. We've had other podcasts, you know, that discuss, um, you know, analysis paralysis. There's, you know, you face so many different things. You don't know where to begin. You start thinking, thinking, thinking. But really in this one, you're going to share an instance of, okay, here's, here's a gentleman who's struggling with these problems. Here's our, here's our recommendations um, of how he needs to get started to make the biggest bang for the buck. And I kind of will do the same thing from a different region um but in the same in the same scenario of all right we're dealing with so many different aspects of of troublesome uh, plant species but to really make this farm better and make improvements and not just find ourselves you know not progressing it forward here's where we're going to start and here's how we're going to attack the issues that's right that's right before we really jump into that though we are going to give a shout out for what we've got coming up this summer in case you guys haven't heard, we're doing habitat workshops in Alabama and Michigan. So you guys up in uh, up in the northern Great Plains, the Great Lakes region, this is right up your alley. We're going to host them um, on client properties, so you can see kind of multi-phase process and diversified of a lot of the stuff we talk about on our podcast each and every week, from edge feathering to old field management to invasive species control. Young forest openings or bedding thickets, uh, timber management, uh, different techniques of timber management, uh, and food plot techniques. So uh, we're covering all that. I think it's a, in a nutshell, it's a pod. It's a, you take the almost probably 300 podcasts we've done and cram it into a weekend and see exactly how we implement and and why we're doing it this way. Um, that's that's what the weekend's going to look like uh, with with food and good times and we'll get to hang out with all you guys so um, sign up for that is at shoplandandlegacy.com and then click on the field events tab i think just to add on to that i talked with a client the other day and he was asking me about you know thoughts feelings regarding those workshops it's like you know these are gentlemen who's got all the you know acreage to be able to do a lot of these um say techniques that he's going to see on those properties but one thing i hope people will utilize these workshops for is for the confidence to go out and say hey let me go see how other people are doing and dealing with the same things that i may be dealing with or with different techniques um that you may not have knowledge of and being able just to go and see the different phases that a project will go through will give you a lot of insight of what to expect on your own property. So you can learn, see, meet wonderful people who are all passionate about habitat, land management, but you're also going to be able to go away with just physical observations of what it is that we talk about so much on the podcast. And that's very valuable um, for, for people who are going to go back home and do the same stuff. For sure. Fight the same battles. Yeah. I, 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 hopefully it'll be a, uh, a cure for analysis paralysis. Um, That's right. If you don't have us for a consult, then hopefully you come to our field event and really get cured from your analysis paralysis and have a, a better understanding of what you're doing. And so when you do sink that chainsaw or you fire up that chainsaw, you know what purpose it has and how you're going to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Adam, what what all did you see across Illinois. You were, you were working a couple different properties and in different ways, consulting. Yeah. Um, so what, bring uh, us up to speed on kind of what it was you were seeing, observing. And so so I, I basically I, uh, I consulted on three different farms that ranged from, you know, 30-some acres or just under 40 to right around 100 acres. And um, they ranged from, you know, mixed timber and crop or mixed timber and old field to predominantly 
timber with crops in the area to um, old field with uh, with timber going surrounded by crops and hay pasture. So, mm-hmm. you know, the typical uh, recreational piece where you've got just a lot more timber and because typically you're going to get the timber pieces cheaper than the ones that are all crop or all pasture, obviously. And so a lot of timber component and either being pasture or crop ground. Now, thing about western Illinois, um, and in particular one of these properties was in that Golden Triangle, Adams, Brown, Pike County of, of uh, Illinois, um, where it seems like, you know, back in the 90s and 2000s, that was the place you wanted to be in the world for giant deer. And I'm right in the heart of that. And you know what's interesting always, I mean, we say it in so many of our reports, we say it in so many of our clients, but you know how, <laughs> know you know how many stinking good deer get killed in that area and you get there yep. and you just, once again, you throw your hands up and you're like, we don't even know where the ceiling is and the size of the deer that can be grown in this area because the habitat is terrible. Absolutely. And everybody looks at you like you're just, like you've lost your mind. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm serious. We don't even know the ceiling. We th- we thought, you know, 200 or a, the occasional 215 might be throwing. It's like, well, we don't even know. We don't even yeah. know. It's like, I don't know how fast this car would go. It goes really, 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 really fast, but the, we still have a governor on it, or we still it's still shutting off. It, the engine could do better. Um, that's right. And, and we don't even know. And that's what's frustrating, but at the same time, uh, it's really cool to think about. Um, it's frustrating that, yet refreshing. Yeah, to know that that you can have such success in relatively poorly managed areas from a habitat perspective. Age structure obviously has has been there in the past. Um, to have deer get to an age class that represents mature animals, and um, yeah, there's some giant deer that get shot, and every single year that they they still poke through and shine through, but. But in essence, the landscape, the environment that those are living in um, is is subpar from what it can be, especially knowing the historical um, landscape in that area. That, yeah. that could be just absolutely dynamic for um, not only deer, but a lot of other species, wild game species. And I want to I, I want to explain well, why why habitat's so poor. I mean, you look at it like. I, I, you know, when as soon as we said that and started talking about it, people are like, "These guys are out of their minds." That we don't even know how big a deer could get. But if you look in that region, and that's based on driving the roads and seeing the farms, the timber, ninety-five percent of the timber that we've seen um, is closed canopy, which mm-hmm. is like the worst kind of timber if we're trying to manage for wildlife, uh, especially game species like deer and turkey. And so it's like, all right, well. The timber, 90% of the timber around here is unmanaged, and it's closed canopy, and there's very little food, and there's a very low cover aspect or cover value. Yep. Then you flip over and you say, okay, well, it's pasture ground. Well, it's dominated by cool season non-native turf grass. That's not great. I'll give that yep. a, a 0 out of 10 on a scale of good to bad or bad to good. And then um, flip over and look in the crop ground, the tillable ground, and if if it's been – cut by a combine that's relatively new there's very little spilled grain and then at the same time a lot of these guys are still as soon as they get done cutting the ground they'll go through and rough it up and try to turn the soil and it'll set barren all all winter and early spring so it's really i mean (laughs) if i I was trying to make bad habitat that's what i would do and i am (laughs) i'm telling you if my goal was to say I want to starve the wildlife, and I don't really want any of them around here. That's what I would do. Yeah. And yeah. people are doing it and still killing good deer. That's what's yep. that's what's just insane to me. And, I mean, if we really look at changing the landscape, we got to look at managing large, the large landscape. And um, that's that's where we're at. And so... Um, I mean, if, if you've ever driven through that portion of the country... And really, it's not it's not isolated to half the country, Illinois. So <laughs> exactly right. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, you, but but if you if you drive through there and you just describe those three different types of of um, 
components of the landscape right now, there's not that much outside of those three landscapes. So the percentages of bad is extremely high on the overall landscape in that area. And so that is the true, Adam, why we see folks who are implementing the types of techniques that we'll talk about later in the podcast that live in areas like this are seeing such fantastic results from not only the the, the wild game, but also the plant communities. Because first, when we're managing the habitat, we're managing plant communities that are going to be utilized differently and more so, more often, by the wildlife. So we got to go back down you know, to that resource of managing vegetation first, changing that landscape, what it looks like, its productivity, and then we'll get the usage of wildlife. But we're, we're seeing these incredible results um, from folks like um, Louis Zinn, who you had on the podcast Louis back in Ryan Kirby. November, December. Ryan Kirby's another one in the same general area. Fantastic, fantastic, op- you know, harvesting of, of great deer, uh, incredible hunts themselves. And they're doing these things. And so we, we've got this snapshot of success in these areas that, sure, we're going to sound crazy to someone who may not be familiar with these techniques or as a new listener to the podcast, but but we have the sample size and we have also, I guess just quite frankly, the, the, the knowledge to know that when we when we change the landscape, we're going to most likely get this response back and this response is way more heavily utilized and necessary and require, uh, you know, as a daily basis for whitetails than, than what, you know, they're exposed to right now. Pasture really doesn't do much minus the little bit of clover growth. That's yeah. it. Wow. If, Fantastic. If, if you Not have to, to have the cows, you better diversify the pasture and provide some legumes that are that are also deer food. So clovers, alfalfas, right. even plantains. Uh, when mm-hmm. you, you jump over to the broadleafs or chicory into the broadleaf side, um, those yep. are great. Uh, you know, if you got to have the cows, ragweed, yeah, yep. just letting ragweed grow. Um, all that stuff, if it's included in your pastures, will at least provide something. Now, it's yep. not ideal to have the cows in there, but at the same time, you know, if it's paying for the farm, uh, I'll, I'll applaud you for that and say, it's, it's get a necessary, after. yeah, it's necessary component, but there's ways to change and and honestly this goes back to like the the what we talked about earlier the workshop is this is why we want to see and get people on landscapes that look different than what they've ever seen before because you you have to be able to honestly observe it to be able to comprehend fully what we're looking at and what we're talking about because if you don't have let's say a side-by-side comparison then you're going to say well this is what i'm used to this is this is the way our brains work unfortunately that I, I can't hardly believe without seeing. Well, it's like, I can tell you about it and what describe it to you on the podcast, but I need attendance at these events because you'll see these different components of the different stages um, of these developing habitat uh, features, and then you'll start to see, wow, I could totally see a big deer laying down that, or I could totally see where a fawn would be, um, you know, in there, dropped and then have all this vegetation um to be able to hide in and to be able to forage on same thing with turkeys like you have to be able to get in there and see it and and feel the side-by-side comparisons to really grasp this stuff now what happened for sure and so like we talked about diversifying the pastures but also if it's crop ground if that's how you're helping pay for the farm you have tillable well don't do the don't turn it over um, there's so much research that talks about the importance of, of soil health in your crop ground. Mm-hmm. So stop doing the late fall tillage and leaving bare ground all, all year or all winter and early spring. Cover crop. Right. Cover crop so at least you get food out there so you can help the deer have some sort of forage. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, deep snow, probably not great. But as soon as that snow melts and we get into February, March, it could be phenomenal food, so it'll help let those deer build back some weight and get rec- and start getting out of winter earlier, long before soybeans go in the field, and uh, start getting some uh, start getting some quality forage. So that'd be the other way to really help if you've got tillable ground. Um, this may come. A- Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll well, and then the last piece on that on that timber is my goodness, I'm so sick of seeing closed canopy overstocked 
undermanaged, unhealthy forest. I mean, it's just everywhere you look, it's just screaming at you. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in these places like Western Illinois, it's no different. And mine is throwing in some, I mean, throw in some invasive mid-story, and there you go. I just described half the state, it seems like. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, it's so easy. Uh, one of the clients, so it's kind of a group of buddies um, that are over there, uh, my visit today, and they were like, so what would you do? They're from over in North Carolina, and they're like, what would you do over in North Carolina uh, in the mountains? And I'm like, it's hard to say without looking, but I can answer it in one word, diversify. Yeah. And, you know, if you're trying to add diversity to a forest and make it better for your game species, specifically white-tailed deer, it's like, well, you've got the worst-case scenario, closed canopy forest. And so if we're going to really manage uh, big scale, uh, let's try to look at general forest stand improvement or timber stand improvement if we're managing for a future timber harvest. And then let's let's do some hot spot bedding areas. So we've got really concentrated areas of young forests that are going to provide a ton of food and really high quality cover. And then everywhere else, we're going to cut the weed trees and provide more food and more cover. But it's not the dense, concentrated cover that we like in our bedding thickets. So yeah, the occasional deer might bed out through the timber, but the mature deer is going to seek that dense cover. And especially yeah. during the rut, they're going to seek that dense cover. And so, you know, that's in a in a 30,000-foot drink-out-of-the-fire-hose view, that's what I would be looking at doing, and that's what I've been recommending over this course of these last three days. Right, right. And, and, and this, this may come across as strong, but I think it's important to note that if you're, if you're trying to manage your property and do it in an intense manner and you're rolling up to your gate, your front gate, or driving through your property – and it looks the same as everybody else around you, then then there's missing components, obviously. We're, we're yeah. missing the boat if, if when you're driving through, it resembles something that everybody else can see as they drive along the highway or the interstate or the, you know, the boundary roads around the property. There should be a distinct line between when your property starts and where it ends in comparison to a neighborhood because I can I – can, Unless you're in a very highly managed co-op, your your neighborhood may likely be underperforming from a habitat standpoint. And so you you should, if managed appropriately, see drastic differences in the habitat from in between your west line and your east line and your north line and your south line. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter if it's 20 acres, if it's 40 acres, if it's 200 or 2,000. That area and property should look different if your main goal is wildlife than any other property around. Whether it's on X, you should tell a difference. Whether it's Google Earth, you should tell a difference. Google Maps are just driving by or driving through. Well, I have That's that... how drastic of a change we should be seeing at the end of a property that says, all right, my habitat is managed highly and I'm done. Yep. And I had that conversation with client number two. And, yeah. you know, you get there, you always ask them, okay, you know, what's your goals? Where are you trying to go? What kind of equipment are we dealing with? What what means do we have as far as, you know, is it going to be you with a chainsaw? Or is it going to be a crew of buddies with a chainsaw? What what mm-hmm. have I got? Mm-hmm. What have I got what to help souls? me get you to where you need to be? And then you always ask, okay, what's the neighborhood like? Are, have you got neighbors killing big deer? What are they doing? And you can I mean, it's I hate I hate always never, but you can almost always guess there's going to be a few neighbors that have food plots and they're known for killing the big deer in the area. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was no different in this case. He goes, you know, he's very active. I, I think he's a, a QDMA guy um, sure. or NDA guy now, and I think he's uh, and he's killing good deer. And uh, you know. Um, you can look at his his map. He's got a couple big food plots over there. I said, all right, great. Let's look at the map. Let's look at the aerial image. Pull out on X. I start scrolling. I said, what do you notice? I see the green food plots. Yep, that's what we see. Do you notice anything different about your timber and his timber? No. Me either. This is an easy <laughs> solution. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and then I and I zoom out and I take him to, to my family farm and... Uh, I look and I'm like, 
look at this. You can see, and I'm we're just scratching the surface, like Chad and I said on the podcast a few weeks ago. We've just started scratching the surface. But I can take you to where we've done the work on some timber, and you can see a clear bedding area mm-hmm. or temporary forest opening. And you can see the the strong TSI areas where you're like, those trees are sparse. There's And because I know those trees are space, there's a lot of undergrowth. That's just the yep. way it is. That's the way nature works. And I'm like, that's what we have to create to where when we look at your farm, you can see clear diversity in your forest. And it's like, yeah. we'll start with that. Well, And here's, here's, before you move on from that real quick, everybody knows the value of a food plot and knows that most of that activity is early morning or very late, you know, in the evening, but a lot at nighttime, right? So it's most, like, where most of the deer? time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right, when, when, it, when it matters the most, right? So what are all the other deer doing? Well, they're obviously out in the timber. So to me, if I'm trying to be different, if I'm trying to do something awesome, I would want the same definitive like clear lines of improved habitat in my timber as I do food plots. So when I look at that map, when I see that aerial, I can see very clearly, boom, temporary forest opening. Wow, look at that timber. It's been managed differently. Yep. Because honestly, during daylight hours, for, for the majority of season and the majority of, of, of an entire year, daylight hours, that is where the deer are. Not in the food plot, although a food plot you know, deer get killed on them. Certainly, if you have those definitive resources, to me, it's absolute trump card from a hunting standpoint. I don't want to be the guy who who hunts, you know, a neighbor's fence line because he's killing good deer. I'm the one to be the guy who's got definitive features on a property in my timber. It's managed differently. My cover is available. I know how to hunt it. I can access it, and it's like absolute clear night and day. Yes. Is my strategy. It's like here's the question. Okay, should I plant turnips or bra- uh, uh, should I plant turnips or should I plant clover, chicory? Should I plant a, a mix? Doesn't matter. Should I plant? Should I plant shrubs, yep. Egyptian wheat, um, evergreens, or miscanthus for my shru- uh, for my uh, for screen. my screen? Doesn't matter. Um, and I and I'll answer that here in a second. Uh, should I do a hinge cut or should I do? Uh, uh, should I go and plant some fruit trees? Doesn't matter. All of We're that is the wrong question. Is irrelevant. What you should be focusing on is how do I get deer to live on my property more than the neighborhood? And yes. how do I do that? Uh, secure cover. You got to start to me. I'm a secure cover guy. I think that's where we start. At least bring them to the farm so they're bedding there during the day. Everything else we'll figure out. And I'm not a guy who really thinks that. I, I think it's like this. If I've got secure cover and just up the hill or just up the knoll is a nice food plot, I don't think it's really going to matter if it's uh, this brassica or that plot because really it's just about the spatial distance between that secure bedding area that he likes and the food plot. Yeah. and so, I mean, honestly, high-quality food, if it's high-quality food, it's high-quality food, essentially. Like, yeah. we can obviously get down into the nitty-gritty and have diversity of food plots, and that's fantastic. But but literally, if you are – if you're focusing on that question too much of what – which variety, which <laughs> this and that, you're yeah. thinking too hard because you, you've missed the point of, I need to know where that deer's at. Like, if, you're not, yeah. if you don't have the daylight activity on your property – it does not matter what variety of food plot you're going to plant. Yep. They got to be on there. That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> distance so that you can get in between. Or you can hunt the bedding area or you hunt the backside of the food plot so you kill them before they get there. Like, it, they will go to high quality food. That's a given. I mean, yeah. they'll go to poor quality food if, it's, if the area is that bad. But anything of high quality food, densely concentrated into a food plot situation, Deer will show up. Yeah. Corn, should I plant corn or soybeans or my crop? Doesn't matter. We're focused first on the that all all the things that I just listed off previously to to you explaining. That can matter in a in in the step or order of procedure in managing mm-hmm. the farm. Correct. We can have those conversations later. But when we when we first have a conversation, it better be Let's find secure cover, identify secure cover, 
improve secure cover, wherever that be in an old field, prairie, or a timber stand, we have to create that first because that's where we're going to get daylight activity. That's where we're going to get daylight movement and, 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 and deer staying on you during daylight. And then we'll build off of that. But yeah. it's it's like trying to decide. Um, t- to me, it's like so many people are like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do. Uh, you know, you start planning. You're planning too far ahead. Like, you know, at first, if you're planning a hunting trip, you should first plan out your budget to see what you can afford. And so many guys are like, I'm gonna plan. To, I'm gonna shoot this bull on this uh, over here in this state. I'm gonna go to Arizona. And this outfit is like. Dude, you didn't even think about how much that's going to cost and how much you have in your budget. You were planning to kill that 400-inch bull in Arizona long before you realized you couldn't afford it. Yeah. And yeah. and so many conversations are focused outside of secure cover long before we realize, oh, secure cover helps. Now, And, and I've seen a lot of food plots that look fantastic but don't have the results of deer getting to them yeah. uh, during daylight hours because there's no cover around. I mean – done to a t the way they should have been planted implemented but but the response of the wildlife um is lackluster because the foundation of the property of a recreational property that did not focus on diversity but focused on a food plot situation it 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 lacked the foundational component of secure cover that's right and then the proximity to the high quality resource It, it 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 cannot perform um, to the standard of one that does focus as that standard operating procedure, I think getting cover in key areas where you can get around safely and hunt deer as they move from one to another or one to a um, high quality food resource. There is a marriage and a and a healthy marriage there that, although can't be completed with one, I think there's so many guys that have wonderful looking food plots. <laughs> And this is kind of humorous to me, although it is not real nice, I guess I should say, is when guys spend a fortune and do tons and have beautiful-looking food plots and then their neighbor kills their good deer. And you're like, Why is, what's he doing? I've got better food plots than anybody. He doesn't even have food plots. Yeah, but he's yep. got cover. Yep. And and then the guy that spends no money on food plots, who's that neighbor, that guy, and, and he, all he's done is pretty much just show up and hunt and his property because of whatever reason is thick and nasty and it's got all the cover in the world well i don't have to do anything because that's where the deer want to be now the marriage is improving these little food plot acres uh on the property that's thick and nasty and having these little bitty kill plots or that will certainly help your property and certainly help your hunting strategy but uh, I think if you're going to ask me, would I rather have a, uh, uh, a monstrous farm with tons of beautiful-looking food plots or a medi- mediocre-sized farm or medium-sized farm with tons of cover and not worry about food plots, I'm going to take the medium-sized one with tons of cover. Hands yeah, down. I'm not even going to think about it. It's already it's done. That's the, that's the value of, of first focusing on cover. And then yeah. moving on to um, the other aspects. Now, and one of the things off, off other Adam, that we want to talk about is like the the common thought of, well, if I add cover, depending on the size of the property, I may then yeah. therefore help my neighbors. The what let's if game. Let's people through that. Yeah, the what if game. That. And, and that's such to, a common thought. It's and a scary it's one. It's so common, and I've even been guilty of it in the past. But here is just my thoughts and your thoughts and just why it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a road we should not go down. We can have the conversation, but I don't want to manage my farms with the what-if game played out. And for that, I'm going to say, let's say you've got a piece of property and one corner or one side of this property is next to a neighbor who might hunt or they show up during gun season and so you're like, I don't really want to do anything over there because I don't want I don't want to improve it for my neighbor to kill the deer. Okay. But you realize how poor the habitat is. Like mm-hmm. you know how much that you, you especially if you're on a small property. If you're on a small property that, you know, an average whitetail's probably got a range of five hundred acres, give or take. And so if you're on a property that's less than two hundred, and especially less than a hundred, 
you're sharing the deer with your neighbor, whether you want to admit it or not. That's just regardless. That, that's just as as it's happening as true as the sky is blue. That's just that 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 the deer are going to your neighbors, and so you not improving it basically is, is just helping your neighbors. Is helping your neighbors because you're not providing anything that he's not already providing, and so yeah. playing the what if game is. I'm not going to do anything on my farm on that part because I don't want to create bedding or create a food plot that my neighbor can take advantage of. And I'll use a a theme here and say, okay, I've got this back corner that's five acres or so. I could make a temporary forest opening and make some pretty good bedding. I'm not sure if those neighbors hunt or not, but in case they do, I don't want to make great bedding there, so they're going to kill the deer that is going that's utilizing that area. Well, here's what would have to happen. First, you would have to cut in the area and then deer utilize it. That's easy, that's almost a given. Almost always, if you cut in a temporary forest opening or a bedding thicket, the deer are going to use it. Third step is the deer have to use it during the time of the year and especially the day that the landowner is hunting. That's third mm-hmm. step. Fourth step is that deer or that buck has to be using it and leaving the area during daylight when the neighbor is hunting. And fifth, the wind has to be right so he's not alerted by the hunter who's there on the day during the time that the deer is using that bedding thicket and moving out across his property. And then I would say seventh is the landowner actually has to make an ethical clean shot <laughs> yeah, and kill. Or, exactly. And he, a, has to, he has to be awake. Steps. There's a mm-hmm. lot of steps to make that happen. When, it, when he could just as easily go to the interior of your property, especially if you have a boundary road, then it's a no-brainer to me. I'm going mm-hmm. to get this deer conditioned to going to the interior of my property because he knows that's where the best cover is. That's where he's least amount uh that's where the least amount of disturbance is occurring so the what if game is such a just such a a waste of of resources it's a waste of land and honestly it's almost as if it's a disservice to the landscape as well as the wildlife here's a recreational landowner who is wanting to improve the property but not at the expense that potentially a neighbor may benefit yeah. Despite the deer already utilizing that neighbor's property. And to me, goes back to what we first started with this is I want to make sure that I'm doing absolutely everything I can, although the neighbor may benefit still from it. That doesn't change regardless of the situation as if I don't do anything or do minimal or if I go full bore, he still could benefit. Because, again, the property size is the property size and the wildlife uh, you know, the deer's range is the deer's range, but I still want more quality resources that are going to relate to daylight activity on my property opposed to equal quality of that same resource on my neighbor's property. I mean, if you, I'm if you want to put the cards in my hand yeah. and play the upper card. Because if you want to play the what if game, we can also flip around and say, well, what if that bedding, that bedding area that we created over close to the boundary held a couple of young bucks in it during the day that the landowner was hunting so they didn't get killed as a nice three-and-a-half-year-old or a nice two-and-a-half-year-old, and therefore they're going to be available to hunt the next year. You can mm-hmm. just flip it right around and say, actually, it's beneficial. And Absolutely. And, and so for me, I always look at it and say, let's go the route that's beneficial to the habitat, I- beneficial to the forest. I mean, if those trees could talk, they're sitting there going, thanks, just because of where I'm at, you're going to neglect me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think it kind of goes back to one of those principles of land management, Adam, that, that you and I probably are, are so foundationally uh, try and represent that there's there's very little circumstances or situations that we're going to find ourselves in that we say, yeah, let's not do anything there. Let's not let's not address that portion of the property um, in due time. In time, we'll get there. Again, as a standard operating procedure, we're going to hit the areas that are going to have the biggest impact for for the landowner, but we don't want to neglect anything, and that's something that we're probably not going to waver on um, now or 5, 10, 15 years from now. Still probably going to be preaching the same message. If if you're owning that land, if it's part of your property, 
let's do something to make it more functional and um, improve it for your goals and you know whatever it is you have in mind. That's so right. I, that's just that's just the way it is. I guess. Yeah. It's like I can't <laughs> unwaver from the fact that habitat needs improved. And uh, yeah, by habitat yeah. being improved, I have to fly the flag of native species. And that's, that's right. why it's like it's very hard for people to like, you know, let's find an acceptance of a non-native. Well, we do that in the food plot realm. But like yep. using non-natives for screening and, and different things is like mm, there's a better native option. And I can't, I can't come off the base that natives are almost always better. That's right. That's because right. Because if I do, then the whole thing, I could, I, or, if or. I came back five years from now and I started telling you, you know what, guys, I've reevaluated and I think this is the best screening option. And it's a non-native and it's not been tested and we're really kind of unsure of if it's got long-term um, problems. Uh, everything I've told you in the past 10 years should be questioned. Yeah, right. Totally. Totally. So, but that, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> don't have to worry about that. Yeah, so, but, you know, let's let's kind of, you know, we play the what-if game. The other important thing that I saw this week was, you know, uh, it's just the ongoing importance of timber management um, mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, most of recreational farms seem to be more timber than anything else. It and it appears that timber management is such a such a neglected practice and underutilized. And so there's so many guys out there that have timber ground that is just like, well, I got food plots, that's good enough, and and that's not even timber management. So you've got the the, the thing that is the most abundant on your landscape being the least amount of management, uh, or yep. having the least amount of management. Which as a business, that's just that's just not a good business move. And, you know, if you really want to improve your farm, you have to manage what the majority of the farm is. And it can be very overwhelming to think about trying to thin timber and improve cover, improve food in something that is just downright, uh, just downright, um, sorry, I, I was, uh, I got into a little bit of traffic there, but it's oh, yeah. very hard to to improve and think about when it's so many acres that's when you can feel like you're just completely outgunned and overmanned and Mm -hmm. that's where you can utilize other other techniques and and for one client that i visited with it was like very refreshing what do you think it was matt what do you think he's already got moving forward a timber sale and so the whole farm is getting a big timber sale and we could walk around and see the painted trees, and, and in my head, mm. I'm always looking ahead. You know, it's it's good to see the farm for what it is, but it's most importantly to see the farm for what it's going to be. That's and right. I'm looking at blue dots, and I'm looking at canopies, and I'm saying, that's going to be a nice opening in the forest. That's going to be a mm-hmm. nice opening for us. Oh, here's three of them together, and they're all getting cut. That's going to be wonderful because we're going to see a big uh, influx of sunlight. Now, I think a lot of guys would say, well, then there goes the bedding thickets because you no longer, you, now you've got cover everywhere. Well, yes, that could be true, and, and certainly you're going to see deer utilize the treetops that are left and the new growth that comes up. But, but once again, going back to the what-if game, why do we let our timber get overstocked and continue to degrade from the standpoint of we don't want to lose out on the benefits of knowing defined bedding and once again mature deer are going to seek out the densest cover and the most secure cover they can find so that's where your bedding thickets really shine um and so this guy's utilizing a timber sale and implementing about 10 bedding cuts on 80 acres and so you think about that the oaks that are left are going to produce more acorns because they have less competition there's going to be more forbs uh, more more herbaceous plants growing in the understory, and then once they finish that, the sec or the third phase would be timber stand improvement. And I mean, these guys are off to the races, and there's not a farm in the neighborhood that can compete with their eighty. Mm, that's awesome. You went you went through a dead spot, but I know your mic was picking up everything. But oh, gotcha. It sounds it sounds like 
that timber harvest is going to do a fantastic job of, of opening up the canopy and then the follow-up of management that, that will um, continue on That's afterwards right. is going to further improve that herbaceous layer as well as cover throughout that farm. That 80 acres ought to be situated just, just really well. Is there any invasives that, that you see throughout the property that they're going to have to get on that you know would be mindful of to come back and return after they open up the canopy. There's bush honeysuckle in the area. There's a few, you know, there's some spots of it on the farm. There's some uh, multiflora rose, which seems to be mm-hmm. everywhere anyway. Um, yep. And but these guys are very ambitious, and they're and they're going to use the uh, the the map that I give them or the maps that I give them to help kind of. And we're going to build off of their current road system, mm-hmm. create some more roads, and then in the process of that. Once the logging crew comes in, they're going to make the road system, and then they're going to f- do a little bit of cleanup on that, and they're going to be implementing prescribed fire. Oh, great. And great. so, you know, that's that's kind of order of procedure or standard operating procedure where you're looking at, okay, well, if we're doing all this, we want to make sure that we're keeping the invasives back. And mm-hmm. for these guys, uh, implementing prescribed fire is certainly going to help them because uh, it's going to set back the multiflora rows, and if they get any kind of burn regime going, they're most likely going to thin it out to a point where the natives can outcompete it. Then, um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's so exciting, man. I mean, it's it's one of those where I think sometimes guys think, well, if you want to if you want to kill Boone and Crockett's, you got to have more than three hundred acres or whatever they may say, but you really don't. Um, you you can no. kill the best deer in the neighborhood by having the best habitat in the neighborhood and letting your neighbors help get that deer to the age um, that he needs to be with the nutrition that he needs, whether it be through crop fields or alfalfa pastures or just great old fields or native prairies. As long as you have the most ideal habitat for the time of the year that is hunting season and you keep them during the day on your farm, you're the one with the best chance at harvesting that deer. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that you brought up a good point is kind of transition over to um, another standard operating procedure uh, discussion, and that goes to having to deal with invasives. And oh, I came yeah. from you know, a property in Ohio. Um, this was a good-sized property, about 600-some acres, and very steep terrain, um, but broad ridges that had both crops but had uh, – old uh, cattle pasture on them as well mm-hmm. and dotted food plots and and so we're looking at a property that i would say because of the steepness of the slope on a on a routine basis deer are probably going to be found on 50 percent of the farm yeah and so i mean that so like the top half of the slope and up on the more flat ground the more gentle um, inclines, the benches, that's what's focusing and holding a lot of the deer activity. And so of this property, about 150, 130, 150 acres um, were old cattle pastures that had not been turned into crops, um, and, and there was still cool season grass everywhere. So to me, that's, that is a non-native. It's not necessarily an invasive necessarily. It was planted particularly, but it is – it is not the friend, it is an enemy of wildlife. Um, but you look at that, and from a 600-acre uh, property with crops already part of it, we need to create some corridors to connect some pieces, some wood blocks and stuff uh, across that tillable. But that 130, 150 acres means a lot because that's situated on the ridgetops. That, again, it, it constitutes part of that 50% because of the steepness where a lot of the wildlife are going to um, be utilizing. So just outside of that as soon as you get into the timber there is it is riddled with multiflora rose bush honeysuckle autumn olive a lot of fescues actually creep down into the timber or it was previously pasture and then a lot of just woody re-sprouts have come in started to grow shagbark hickory ash elm um black locusts have really started to kind of take back over in some of these slopes so we're dealing with a lot of issues or troubles when we're starting to go in and focus on the actual timbered areas. So yeah. for my standard operating procedure, it's it's essentially 
let's really do our best at managing that 50% of the farm. Again, we're not, we're not forgetting about that other 50%, but right now it's not the priority. Let's focus on the actual old field, spray out that fescue, and for the next two years, let's make that old field and those tops where deer are going to really be focused at, let's make that the best we can. And then from there, we're going to go in and hit the areas that of the timber that deer are going to utilize, the gentle slopes, the benches, the points, and we're going to attack the invasive species there. We're yeah. going to get rid of the bush honeysuckle. We're going to get rid of the autumn olive, the multiflora rose. We're going to spray out the fescue. And once we've got those, that under control in those areas, then we can actually go and reduce the canopy or open up that canopy. Um, because if we didn't do that, on the flip side, if we went into the timber very first and didn't worry about the old field or didn't worry about the invasives already present, the only thing that we're doing is encouraging more invasive growth. Yeah. And, and, and this is what you know, kind of, if you will, sucks for having a property that, that truly is just infested in this area throughout Southern Ohio and the, the Western portion of the state is, is just very, very heavy, um, bush honeysuckle understory. Yeah. And so, so now we're talking about first attacking and creating a resource that is extremely limited in the actual neighborhood, old field. It, it, everything is usually crops, pasture ground, hay field, Ooh, and that's it. And then it goes right into timber. So we're creating a high value resource that's going to hold deer. And it's going to congregate deer to areas that are huntable and put them in close proximity to great feeding locations. But then it's going to create that limited resource and allow us to not allow, allow us to be able to, in the next five, 10 years, have cover that is dependable while we go and address the the target areas that are infested with invasives while we decrease the invasive load there before that really good deer cover comes in the timber, we, we have cover that they can utilize. It's like yeah. we've got to and create I've, it where we know we can have it cleanly to be able to go and then fix an issue. Yeah. And I think that's where I want to, I want to kind of pivot right into standard operating procedure into a farm that I visited that is different uh, procedure than mm-hmm. what you did. And I mm-hmm. think each farm is different because what we're trying to do is maximize and basically go up against father time of saying, we want to improve this farm as quickly as possible. And sometimes the operating procedure may be different, um, right. or a lot of times it is because we're trying to reach those goals while still fighting back the foe of our uh, of our invasive species. And so it's kind of like hold them with your left hand while swinging with your right hand at another at another one because That's right. for our guy or for the guy I worked with um, in Illinois is he had areas chocked full of bush honeysuckle and autumn olive. But mm-hmm. because of the area he was in, that really was some of the best cover because his timber was just wide open. It was your sure. typical timber that had giant oaks. It was upland, so giant oaks, big hickories, um, with an understory chocked full of ironwood and sugar maples. Mm, yep. And and you know how that gets, like, I mean, park-like, you can oh, see for hundreds so. of yards through the timber. So big, if we big went tall in, canopy and then a heavy midstorm. If he went in and just started attacking the, the invasives and, and cutting it down on the ground or going in with a grinder head on a skid steer, he would ultimately be cleaning the plate of cover and invasives, which cleaning the plate with invasives would be great, but you would lose what little cover you had. And so a couple of his areas, big ridges, had zero uh, almost, I mean, I, I don't know if I saw hardly any sprigs of invasives. So what his operating procedure is going to be, year one, put in bedding thickets. Uh-huh. And at the same time, this in, area... In those areas that don't have the invasive bug. Yeah. Correct. And, yes. and the guy in the area that um, that he one of his biggest goals was to try to find areas to add food plots, which I don't blame mm-hmm. him. He doesn't have them right now, other yeah. than a few yeah. close to his home site, which is down mm-hmm. in a valley where he said the wind swirls. I get yeah. it we got to add some food plots. So what we're going to do is 
um, lay out some food plot areas on this ridge right in the heart of where the uh, inv- inv- uh, invasion of bush honeysuckle autumn olive is. So we're going to kind of kill two birds with one stone. We're going to get food plots, but we're going to eradicate some invasives. And nice. so at least we'll have those areas taken out or those few acres taken out of invasives and promoted with some sort of high-quality forage. Now, once he does that, he adds thick bedding and he adds quality forage and he improves his trail system, then he's going to quickly jump right into invasive control mm-hmm. and be trying to, to knock that back. Um, but I, as I told him, I said, ultimately, you're going to be taking a couple of steps back if you attack the invasives right. first because mm-hmm. you're going to lose the cover, what little cover is here. And uh, and then you're going to have to go and cut it in later on some other places. So he's going to go a little bit differently than what your guy or your recommendation. But at the same yep. time, you're both we're, both clients are going to reach their goals quicker because of the prioritizing or the standard operating procedure and, 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 and go from there. And I think it's funny that you know, we're going to name this thing standard operating procedure where really the, the farm and the, the neighborhood – they define what that standard is. It's not this just clear coat cookie cutter. This is what we do because there's just two perfect examples of, of where we're going to attack things a little bit differently. Yeah. But, but for this case and for this farm and what they're dealing with, whether it's equipment, the time, the resources, whether it's the, the heaviness or the, the load of infestation of invasives, that determines the standard of operating procedure yeah not not this just oh well this is how we do and this is how we attack everything this is how we do timber management this we're just we only use this one technique no standard operating procedure is based off of that specific given property and their specific situation that they find themselves in so we can read all these articles and we can listen to a bunch of podcasts and watch videos but i mean it when i say it every farm is different that's and right. everyone should be attacked differently. And this is where this is where we come in. This is how we help and how we provide the assistance to landowners to say, whoa, 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 let's not take that step yet with our left foot. Let's step with our right foot. Now we can do this and accomplish this while that's not getting worse. Then once the right foot is in place, the left foot can take the step. And, and we're moving more in a, in a, a manner across the farm that – just makes sense and common sense for the wildlife and for the, the overall goals of not completely in your situation removing cover um, and, and in my situation not completely focusing on on uh, removing invasives when there's a clear low-hanging fruit that we can add cover and very high value food resources in close proximity to huntable locations where deer to be frequent yeah. and I should mention too that you know, this this big ridge, this big flat on this ridge that, that I'm talking about being infested with bush honeysuckle autumn olive um, mm-hmm. that we're going to kind of get to on year two, three, four, um, that is, it, it's so grown up or it's kind of, I mean, it's been grown for a while. One of the great things is that we can utilize that, that horrible invasive to our advantage. So instead of going in and grinding it up, when he does mm-hmm. start attacking it, what he's going to utilize is the hack and squirt method. And so mm-hmm. he's going to go in and hack these autumn olive bush honeysuckle stumps, and which are pretty large, um, and he's going to kill them but still keep that cover aspect because it's not going anywhere. It'll just break yeah. down slowly, but in the process of breaking down, it's going to allow other natives to grow up around it. And so, you know, it, it, it's not all bad. We're going to basically find the silver lining and say well we're going to kill it but we'll still utilize some cover from it right right we're going to utilize that structural component that it had and then and then use it for our good that's right that's right so i like it yeah i I know i know hopefully this uh, this was kind of our podcast consulting brain dump but i think it had a lot of a lot of important points that hopefully people can utilize on their farm and because it's a great time of the year to be doing habitat work you know one is there a bad time Come There's really not. There's a bad time for certain practices, but That's it's right. always a good time to improve habitat. And, you know, we, we did a little bit of chainsawing today on my last consult, and uh, I noticed that walnuts and, and ironwood mm-hmm. and maple were really sure. pushing up some sap. So, um, you know, uh, it might be time to start thinking about shutting that chainsaw off for a little while 
and picking up and starting to prime up the sprayer because I notice a lot of cool season grass is starting to green up. And so it'll be a good time to do some old field management. And and even even so, another key point that I thought about um, is I saw some poison hemlock um, Mm -hmm. starting to really green up. I'm like, oh, it'd be a good time to go hit that, especially on Mm -hmm. those riparian areas. Because that stuff Absolutely. will get thick and rank and nasty and stinky in just a few yep. months. So that's it. Anyway, man, yeah. Um, I hope uh, I hope that was valuable to someone who, who's dealing with certain situations, or or just honestly, if they're sitting there wondering what is a standard operating procedure on my farm, what what is it that I do? How am I attacking this poorly? How should I be attacking this? And if you have those questions, you know, send us an email info at landlegacy.tv. And we would love to help out um, or send us, uh, you know, messages on social media. Um, that's Facebook and Instagram. And we, we're here to help. We're here to help through consulting services or just answer a couple questions. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, we'd love to be able to communicate with you guys and take your farm to the next level with, with uh, whatever services we offer. For sure. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. Um, it's almost food plot time too, so go check out shoplandandlegacy.com, see the food plot blends, and uh, that we got from Stratton. And uh, man, you know, I, I say it a lot. I don't say it during the heat of the summer, but I love this time of year. That's it. We'll see you in the heat of the summer in Michigan and Alabama. How about that? There you go. And I'll say, I love seeing you guys, but I hate this time of year. It's hot. That's it. It's so, hot. Anyway, all right, guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. Peace.